in Acts chapter 14 as Kevin read for us. Excitement swirled on the Sunday morning of October 19, 1856. Over 10,000 people gathered in one place for one church service. The church was the church that Charles Spurgeon was a pastor of. And that church was seeing tremendous growth and had rapidly outgrown its facilities. And so they made plans to expand their building. And in the intervening time, they had to meet at various venues across the city. And as they were kind of in that in-between time, the church continued to grow. And so they needed a larger venue in the city. And so Spurgeon was able to secure the facility at Surrey Gardens. It was a magnificent venue with uh, three balconies seating approximately 10,000 people. And so October the 19th was to be the first Sunday that Charles Spurgeon and his church gathered at this new venue. And more people than they had anticipated came. So over 10,000 people came to hear the gospel be preached that October morning. And so as excitement filled the air, Spurgeon entered the pulpit and began the service with a word of prayer. During that prayer, someone shouted, Fire! as a joke. Well, it was not received as a joke. Panic ensued. Chaos followed. People rushed for the only exit out the back of the building And in the midst of the chaos, the stairwells on the balconies collapsed. Seven people ended up losing their life. Twenty-eight more were rushed to the hospital with various injuries. The London papers blamed the young Spurgeon. In moments such as these, we're left asking the question, why? Why did that happen? Why would God allow that Catastrophe to happen. I mean, why was God's work disrupted by this tragedy? And so as we think about suffering and evil in the world, and we think about God and His sovereignty, it's helpful to make a distinction. A distinction between a defense and an explanation. A defense seeks to say that the existence of evil does not disprove God. An explanation seeks to show the reasons why God might allow such a thing to happen. Defense seeks to show that the existence of evil does not uh, refute the existence of God. Explanation shows what are some of God's reasons for allowing evil to exist in the world. And as we've been walking through the book of Acts, we have been confronted with a ton of evil. The church itself has been persecuted by Jews and by Romans. Of course, the most evil that we have seen is the death and resurrection, the death of Jesus at the hands of both Jews and Gentiles. In our passage today, however, Luke provides an explanation for evil. So yes, evil, tribulation, they exist, but Luke will say that 
Tribulations are, in fact, necessary for Christians. That is, God has a purpose in the tribulation for His people. So the fact that evil and tribulation exist is not meant to discourage us this morning. It is rather instead to encourage us, to remind us that God, even in the midst of tribulation, has a purpose for you and for us. And so we ought to be encouraged because it is through tribulations that our faith is strengthened and the faith of others is strengthened. And so our passage this morning, it continues where we left off last week. It continues chronicling Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. They left Pisidian Antioch and they came to a place called Iconium. Iconium was 90 miles east of Antioch. You'll remember they left Antioch because the Jews became hostile to the preaching of the gospel. Paul and Barnabas said, fine, we're going to the Gentiles. So they come to Iconium. However, when they come to Iconium, they follow the same pattern of ministry that we saw in chapter 13. They begin by going to the synagogue. And Luke tells us that they spoke powerfully and persuasively in such a fashion that a great many Jews and Greeks believed. They received and rejoiced in the gospel. But as we also saw last week, that is not the only response to the gospel. There are those who reject the good news of salvation. And so these unbelieving Jews, they stirred up the Gentiles and they they poisoned their minds against Paul and Barnabas. And so they're in a new picture at the beginning of chapter 14. They're in a a new place, excuse me, but the, the picture is the same of what we've seen. Yet, in the face of this growing opposition, Paul and Barnabas continue boldly proclaiming the gospel. And Luke tells us that God powerfully confirmed the truth of their message by allowing them to work miracles. You see that in verse 3. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. This is a pattern that we have seen and come to expect in Acts. The word of God is proclaimed and God confirms that yes, this is His word by performing miracles through the apostles. And our tendency in 2022 is to focus on the miracles. And how do they do that? What do they look like? Luke wants us to focus on the message that they proclaimed. The miracles confirmed the message. They confirmed the messengers. That this is in fact God's word and these are in fact God's messengers. The miracles are meant to take our eyes off the physical up to the spiritual and on to God. Nevertheless, the hostility, it turns violent. So Paul and Barnabas, they traveled to Lystra. Lystra was another 18 miles away from Iconium. And there at Lystra, they began preaching. And there's a man who's crippled from birth, and he's listening to Paul. 
And Paul sees the man listening to Paul's message. And Paul sees that he had the faith to be made well. And so Paul heals him. And Luke, who's a doctor, tells us that he sprang up. He didn't just slowly or simply get up. He sprang up. He jumped. The crippled man jumped up. Luke wants us to see this is a, an extraordinary act that God is working powerfully through his messengers. The crowd immediately recognized the truly miraculous nature of the healing. And so they began to, to deify Paul and Barnabas. Last week we saw Paul's interaction with the Jews and we said that's kind of like sitting in on a family meeting. Made references and, and allusions to things in the Old Testament that we might not pick up on on first read. But Paul and his listeners would have known exactly what Paul was referencing there. But now here in Acts chapter 14 we see Paul and the gospel come face to face with the Gentiles and their polytheism. And so they declare Paul to be Hermes and Zeus and Barnabas to be Zeus. In ancient mythology, where Zeus is, Hermes appears with him, and Hermes is the, the spokesperson of Zeus. This incident reveals the depths of pagan religion in the ancient world. The Latin poet Ovid records a, a, an event in Lystra that happened earlier than uh, our account here in Acts. And uh, this early account uh, recorded by Ovid, uh, the supreme god Jupiter, it was his Roman name, or Zeus would have been the Greek name. So Zeus and his son Mercury, again Mercury is the, the Roman name, Hermes is the Greek name, so Ovid records that Zeus and Hermes came to Lystra. Yet they were disguised as mortals seeking housing. So according to the legend, the only people in the city that would receive the gods that had come down to men was an elderly couple. And the story goes that their house was then transformed into a temple and they were made priests and the rest of the city was wiped out because they had rejected the gods. They did not recognize the gods. And so when we see here the city respond by deifying Paul, they are acting on that poor history and, and intending to not repeat that. And so they say with Paul and Barnabas, the, the gods have come to us. Let's not make the same mistake that we made in the past. And Paul and Barnabas will have none of it. They tear their clothes in an act of ardent protest. They will not participate in this idolatry. And you'll notice that Paul's sermon in chapter 14, it's, it's much smaller than it was in chapter 13, but it also begins in a different place. Paul responds uh, to, to their wanting to make sacrifices to them, but they tear their clothes, and then Paul launches into a sermon, and it starts in a different place. Again, in chapter 13, Paul's speaking to Jews. 
So as he's speaking to Jews, he can take certain things for granted from the Old Testament because they shared a certain worldview. But in chapter 14, Paul's speaking to Gentiles who don't have that same common ground. So Paul starts his sermon in a different place. While the two sermons start in different places, the the goal of their sermon is the same. Turn away from your sin and turn to the one true living God. And so he says in verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Notice Paul says their idols, Hermes and Zeus, they're vain. They're futile. They're worthless. They're meaningless. They're not real. And Paul says, turn from those vain things and turn to the living God. Turn to the living God who created everything that you can see and even the things you can't see. Paul starts his sermon by looking at creation. By pointing to what we can see in the world around us. The birds of the air, the animals on the ground, the mountains, the oceans. They all, repoint, they all point to the reality of a divine creator. They testify to God's power and his wisdom. And the rain testifies to God's goodness toward all men. And that goodness is intended to drive them to, to turn from their sins and to turn to the living God. After this sermon, Luke tells us that Jews traveled from Antioch and Iconium to Lystra. If you were to do the math, that would be over a hundred miles that these Jews had traveled from Antioch to Lystra. And they came with the goal to persecute Paul. They stoned him and dragged him out of the city. The disciples gathered around Paul and Paul rose up and then returned to the city. Luke tells us the next day Paul and Barnabas traveled to Derbe which is about 55 miles away from Lystra. Luke tells us that after preaching in Derby, Paul and Barnabas began retracing their destinations on their missionary journey. He tells us that they revisited the places that they had just preached the gospel with the purpose of strengthening, encouraging, and equipping the believers there and the churches there. So after having reached people with the gospel, now they're returning to then build them up as the church. And their goal is to strengthen the souls of the disciples. Notice how Paul strengthens the soul of the disciples. In verse 22, strengthening the soul of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith 
and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. If you're taking notes, that's my first point. That tribulations strengthen your faith. Tribulations strengthen your faith. Merriam-Webster defines tribulation as distress or suffering resulting from oppression or persecution or simply a trying experience. So again, keep in mind Paul's goal. His goal is to strengthen the souls of the disciples. And his strategy is by telling them that it is through tribulations they must enter the kingdom through tribulations. Distress, suffering, a trying experience. Who wants to sign up? That's Paul's strategy for strengthening the souls of the disciples. Is to say, hey, don't be surprised when tribulations happen. In fact, don't be surprised, but actually expect them to happen. You must enter the kingdom through the tribulations. Friends, if we're honest, that's not a message we love to hear. We aren't naturally excited about distress or suffering. The businesses don't make their profits by selling you distress or suffering. In fact, their advertisement to you is the exact opposite. Our product will make your life easier. Don't you want it? And what's hidden in that statement is the implicit argument that easier is better. Get our product because it's easier and that will make your life better. That's the message our world sells us every day. Easier is better. Path of least resistance. That's what you want. But notice what Paul says. He says you must enter the kingdom of God through tribulation. The must here means exactly what you think it means. It must happen. There's no other alternative. There's no other way. We enter the kingdom through tribulation. And speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus explains to them the cost of following Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Keep in mind, in the ancient world, the cross was not sold at a jewelry store. It was a sign of suffering and death. Jesus calls his disciples to take up their cross to follow him. To be a Christian is to live a life of self-denial. It's the hard road. It is not the path of least resistance. Again, what Paul is saying here in Acts chapter 14, how he's seeking to strengthen the souls of the disciples, 
is exactly how Jesus sought to strengthen the souls of his disciples. In John chapter 16, in John chapter 16, that is uh, Jesus' kind of farewell address to his disciples. He's about to uh, be crucified, and so he's got uh, a final night with his disciples. And John records that for us. And it's kind of Jesus' final charge to make sure they're ready for when he departs. And in John 16.33, Jesus said this to his disciples. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But Jesus says, take heart. Because I have overcome the world. So in our passage this morning, we see two different kinds of tribulation. We see physical tribulation. You see that in verse 19 when they stoned Paul. It came by physical persecution. Yet physical persecution is not the only way to have a physical tribulation. Some of us are battling illnesses. We prayed for Abby this morning, praying that God would bring relief. We can have physical tribulations where our body is afflicted. But yet we also see emotional tribulation in our passage. Look at verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. We saw it last week in chapter 13 that they begin to revile Paul. Here their minds are poisoned against Paul and Barnabas and the hostility then is cranked up before it gets physical. Again, the picture that Luke is giving us is that they're hurling insults aimed to silence Paul and Barnabas. And you know the old nursery rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. Oh, one preacher living in the the 5th century had this to say, Believe me, it is possible to suffer things now worse than what Paul suffered. He's referring to Paul being stoned in this passage. He said, those enemies pelted him with stones. But it is possible to pelt words that are worse than stone. And I'm sure many of you here this morning know that statement to be true. That words can damage in a way that physical tribulation can't quite compare to. The healing of the mind is a much tougher thing than the healing of a bone. And as you experience either physical or emotional tribulation, the temptation will be the same. It will become, it will be to become bitter at God. Saying, God, why are you allowing me to go through this? And that's exactly why Paul strengthens the souls of the disciples by telling them that it is through tribulations that you enter the kingdom. He wants us to be prepared for when those tribulations come. We're not caught off guard, that our hearts don't become bitter at the Lord. You see, tribulations, they're, they're a bit like a home inspector. 
Those of you who have bought a house, you know exactly what a home inspector is supposed to do. You're in the market of buying a new house and you download Zillow or HomeSnap or get a great realtor. Side note, Hart and Vanessa, they're really good realtors. Uh, you should talk to them if you're interested in buying a house. Uh, but you look at Zillow and you look at HomeSnap and you see all these pictures of homes and you see fresh paint. You see the floors are mopped and, and shiny. They stage the house. They, sometimes they'll even put flowers in the house, make it look real nice. So you say, oh, I want to put an offer on that house. That's the house I want. It looks really good. A home inspector is there to increase your confidence in that house, either one way or the other. A home inspector, his job is designed to look beneath the surface of the house. The pictures on Zillow or HomeSnap, they look pretty, and his job is to get below what looks pretty and say, what's actually there? What are the bones of the house like? Is it a sound structural house or is it not? And so he runs tests on the house to actually put strain on the systems within the house to see how does it hold up? And again, the, in the process of a home inspection, it can be a bit uncomfortable, but the goal is to strengthen your confidence in whether you should buy that home or not. Tribulations are similar, function similarly for Christians. As you experience tribulation of whatever kind, that tribulation peels back your heart and it exposes what you're hoping in. And for those of us in Christ, the tribulation it strengthens our faith by refining and clarifying the preciousness of Jesus. As tribulation increases, so does the preciousness of Jesus as we depend more and more on Him and less and less on the things around us. Tribulations cause us to sing. In the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. And when I am alone, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. So if you're here and you're facing tribulation, then take comfort that the Lord Jesus has gone before you on that road. If it's physical, remember that Jesus suffered physically on earth. If it's emotional, remember that Jesus faced emotional tribulation while he was here. He's betrayed by one of his disciples. He was mocked by the Jews. He was reviled as he hung on the cross, paying for the sins of the world. You will have tribulations, but in Christ, these tribulations work to strengthen your faith. Not only do tribulations strengthen your faith, they strengthen the faith of other Christians. Look with me at verses 24 through 25. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they came down to Adelia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples 
think back at the beginning of Paul's missionary journey, in the beginning of chapter 13. What did Paul and Barnabas set out to do in Acts chapter 13? Well, based on where they first went, they set out to preach the gospel to the Jews living outside of Jerusalem. That's the first place they went, was the synagogue. And then, as we saw last week, that's also the first place they went when they came to Pisidian Antioch, the synagogue. And yet, what happened? Well, they were rejected. And so, in response to that rejection, Paul says, well, fine, we'll go to the Gentiles. And so you see in verse 26 that before they had set out on this journey, God had given them a specific work for them to do. For the work in verse 26. And so we ask the question, well, what was their work? What was their job? Again, if you're thinking back to the beginning of chapter 13 and you're trying to answer that question in the beginning of chapter 13, you're saying, well, their work was to go to the Jews and preach the gospel. So many would repent and believe. And that happened in a small measure, of course, but by and large, they were rejected. So it looks as though in chapter 13 that they had failed in that original mission. But here at the end of chapter 14, Paul is saying that they had fulfilled the work that God gave them to do. And so, again, we look at verse 27. Asking the question, what was the work that God gave them to do? Because in their minds, they fulfilled it. Looking at Acts chapter 13, it looks like they failed. But they're saying they fulfilled it. So what did they fulfill? That God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The tribulations that they faced in chapter 13, in the beginning of chapter 14, were instruments in God's hand to move them to the Gentiles so that a door of faith might be opened to the Gentiles. What they could not see at the beginning of chapter 13, they see clearly at the end of chapter 14. That their tribulation after tribulation after tribulation was the means that God was using to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. God was fulfilling His plan through their suffering. To gather a people for himself from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. To fill the earth with God's glory. And yet God does not only use tribulations to bring people to faith. He uses tribulations to strengthen the faith of others. God uses your tribulations to strengthen the faith of others. If you're here this morning and you find yourself in the midst of a tribulation, then tell someone if you haven't. Tell somebody at this church. Tell your community group. Come talk to Randy, Derek, or myself. We'd love to pray with you and pray for you. You're not designed to endure tribulation alone. God's given His bride for that. And that's the other goal of Paul's discipleship tour is to put elders in place in these churches. 
As they're going and as people are responding to the gospel, these new communities, these distinct communities are being formed called churches. So Paul wants to see elders put over the churches to ensure that this process of reaching people with the gospel, building them up in the gospel, continues. And so the local church is God's means of grace to his people. So every Sunday when we gather to hear the word, to to sing the word, to pray the word, to preach the word, and to see the word in communion, we experience God's grace as his people. As we participate in worshiping God together, even in the midst of our tribulations, we strengthen the faith of others. We gather as not as people who've got it all figured out. We don't gather as those who are perfect. We gather as broken, needy, hurting sinners who need to hear a word from God. And so when you look around and you see your brothers and sisters singing and declaring the praises of God, your faith is strengthened. But also as you look around and you see your brother or your sister who you know is going through a tribulation right now, and you see them persevering and singing the praises of God, your soul is reminded, yes, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus because he's worth it. He's worthy. And I know he's worthy because I can see my brother and my sister who's hurting and they're singing that he's worthy. He's worth it. The tribulations Paul faced on his first missionary journey strengthened his faith. At each turn, he continued preaching the gospel. He was faithful to what God had called him to do. And yet his tribulations were also the means that God was using to bring others to faith in Jesus. And to strengthen the faith of Christians. God is still pleased to use your tribulations. All the while strengthening you in the midst of them to strengthen the faith of others. The way up in Christianity is down. Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. So again, in a room such as this this morning, I'm not so naive to pretend that there aren't some, if not all of you, presently going through some particular tribulation. So I'm not here this morning to tell you everything that God might be doing in that or even why you're experiencing it all. But God's Word does help us see that tribulations serve as vivid reminders that this world is not our resting place. We journey to a celestial city, to a heavenly home. And as we go there, the Lord pries our grip off of this world, opens our hands, and raises them heavenward as we wait to be with Him. And so as you walk through tribulations, be encouraged that your Savior has walked that road before you. After the fire 
at the gardens, Charles Spurgeon had a lifelong battle with depression, went on and off throughout the rest of his life. For him, that tribulation didn't get easier with time. But he had this to say towards the end of his life. I am sure that I have run more swiftly with a lame leg than I ever did with a sound one. I am certain that I have seen more in the dark than I ever saw in the light. More stars, certainly. More things in heaven, if fewer things on earth. The anvil, the fire, and the hammer are the making of us. We do not get fashioned much by anything else. The heavy hammer falling on us helps to shape us. Therefore, let affliction and trouble and trial come. This is the way of Jesus. As we walk that road, we follow Him. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. Father, we thank You that You are not indifferent to our circumstances and our pain. But Father, You have sent Your Son, Jesus, Lord, who who knew no sin. Lord, You sent Him to a sin-filled world. Father, to suffer in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God. Father, would You give us the faith to endure whatever You bring our way. And may we say, it is well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we will transition now to our time of communion. We do that every week here at Midlands. It is a visible reminder of us of two things. One, the price that our dear Savior paid to forgive our sins and the reminder that one day we will be with Him in eternity. So if you're here this morning and you are hoping in and trusting in Christ, then I invite you to come to the table. I'll pray again in just a few moments and you can pray. You can go as you feel the Lord leads you. If you're here this morning and you are, would not consider yourself a Christian, you're not trusting in Christ's saving work, then I'll invite you to participate in a different way. I'll invite you to participate by, remain, by remaining seated and just considering the message that you have heard. I would love to talk with you about what it would mean for you to have a relationship with Jesus so that one day you could come and partake of this meal. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you now for the time to gather around your table. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, for his body broken, his blood shed, that for the forgiveness of sins, Father, fill us with a renewed joy and expectation and anticipation for that day when we get to take this meal with you. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.